Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. It's back. The NOAA Climate Prediction Center recently announced that La Nina has returned and will likely remain with us through the winter season. But what exactly does that mean for us, for the globe? Luckily, we have someone who can help shed light on its potential impacts. Tom DiLiberto is a meteorologist at CollaboraLink Technologies, and throughout his career, he has been researching, forecasting, and blogging about ENSO events for NOAA's Climate Prediction Center. Today, we'll shed light on how these events form and discuss if climate change is impacting them. Plus, we'll touch on the upcoming UN Climate Change Conference known as COP26, which could impact climate change policies across the globe. Tom, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I tell you what, I mean, between, uh, you know, making sure I got your name right and your company's name right, my tongue has gotten a nice workout today, but it's really awesome to have you. Uh, before we get started, you you know, you may know the question that's coming. I'm going to ask you how you became a weather geek or perhaps a climate geek. But before I do that, let me give the listeners a little bit of your background. You have a master's in atmospheric sciences from Stony Brook University and a bachelor of science in atmospheric sciences from Cornell University. Uh, you're the Master of Ceremony at the Department of State's U.S. Center at the UNFCCC COP21 in Paris and COP22 in Marrakech. Uh, you won a national science competition and named America's first ever science idol. Whoa, uh, definitely going to be asked about that. You're an improv comedian, and you have also done a lot of other interesting things that we'll get into. But first, how'd you become a weather or climate geek? Oh, I, I've known I wanted to study the atmosphere and the weather since I was little. Um, the, the, there's a big family story. Well, before I even turned one years old, uh, Hurricane Gloria moved over my house uh, on Long Island. And there's all family stories about my parents having to heat up the bottles on a hot plate in their basement as the eye went over our house. Um, so even from the beginning, obviously, there was some connection I had. And it was something that really touched home to me because these I was looking at places that flood. These are places I went to as a kid. These are as an adult. These are I have lots of fond memories of the places. And I have friends who live in the communities that tend to flood a lot. So it was my first time of really um, applying that research. I did a little bit of, you know, didn't do as much research in undergrad. But in graduate, this is the first time I got to see that, but also like that connection to people in the communities. Um, and it was fascinating. And the thing about my research, I studied storm surge research. I studied storm surge around New York City, and this was before Hurricane Sandy. Um, so I remember telling my advisor, I was like, listen, it, at that point, it had been actually um, statistically uh, a longer, a two, it was basically statistically uh, Looking at the statistics of how the last time a, a, a storm surge flooding event happened on Long Island, they were quote unquote due. Granted, it's not exactly statistically correct, but that idea, they had waited a while um, for a big storm surge event. So I told my advisor, I was like, listen, because I'm doing this research, it's almost a guarantee the moment I'm done and out of here, something bad's going to happen to Long Island. And Hurricane Sandy hit. Um, uh, I believe a year and a half after I got my master's degree and, you know, it was pretty much what we expected to happen, sadly, um, in terms of storm surge. 
and then and you know the areas that flooded were the places that we expected to flood it was it was you know a disaster obviously but um sadly something that was not completely unexpected to scientists about what would happen to that region and then my my other my first real job was working for the famine early warning system network so I had grown up really interested in weather where I lived and weather across the United States. And now my job was to forecast the weather and climate across the developing world. I didn't I didn't know what the weather was going to be like outside my window the next day, but I could tell you what the weather was going to be in West Africa or Southern Africa or Central America or Central Asia. Um, and it was my job to kind of focus on what could potentially affect um food security. Uh, so it could be drought, it could be floods. Um, and it was also this really fascinating time to be able to be the science, but part of this bigger experience, a bigger group of people from not only scientists, atmospheric scientists, but agricultural scientists, to people on the ground, to economists, to people on you know outreach to, to, to this broad communication structure across the U.S. government and uh, nonprofits to basically monitor how things are going across the world. It was kind of my whoa moment about how everything is, you know, so connected and there's just, just everything is just so much bigger um, than I ever could have imagined as I was leading into that job. Now, let's fast forward to the present and that name that gave me a tongue twisting moment as I was reading the intro. You now work for Calabra Link Technologies. Uh, tell us a little bit about that company. I, I suspect it's a government contractor. I, I know because I know you do some work with NOAA's Climate Program Office. So what's up with Calabra Link Technologies and tell us a little bit about your role there. Sure. So yeah, Collaborlink Technologies is a federal contractor. They have um, a good number of uh, positions uh, filtered across NOAA. Um, my specific uh, position is at NOAA's Climate Program Office, currently speaking, which is in NOAA's Office of Ocean and Atmospheric Research, or OAR. Um, and there's a whole bunch of different positions that really runs the gamut from communications professionals to um, science professionals to budget analysts to um, uh, really it's 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 everything you could possibly imagine um and my previous when i was at the climate prediction center at the family warning system network i was with another government contractor as well um there and there's actually a, a large number of people who work at the climate prediction center also who are contractors who are doing cutting edge research as it relates to to climate so um i've kind of shifted a bit i would say in the last five years or so from doing more science to doing more communication um but I still have my I still have my one foot in the research world, and that's now all about Enso and El Nino and La Nina. So here comes the sort of the obvious question because you and I know the answer to this, but we have listeners that run the space. Give us the elevator speech on what Enso, El Nino, and La Nina are. Sure. So ENSO stands for the El Nino Southern Oscillation. It refers to, in general, the whether the waters in the equatorial, the central and eastern equatorial Pacific Ocean are either warmer than average, which would be an El Nino, or cooler than average, which would be a La Nina. And just by uh, changing the water temperature in the tropics can lead to basically a jumble up of the entire atmospheric circulation across a large portion of the tropics. And it's almost like it's the first domino to fall, atmospherically speaking, because what happens in the tropics doesn't stay there. It can very easily affect uh, the jet stream, that area of fast moving winds high in the atmosphere basically serves as like a storm highway. And once you affect the jet stream, well, then you can affect weather where we are here in the United States. Um, and that's why people are so often talking about, oh, if they're in El Nino or is there a La Nina? Because in the wintertime, 
those can affect the jet stream and that those can tend to lead to certain sorts of things happening in the wintertime. Um, and it gives us a lot of time to prepare for any potential issues that come with that. Yeah, and you, you, you heard Tom talking about those various teleconnection patterns uh, that we see because, you know, often people say, well, how does this sort of change in temperature in the eastern Pacific or perhaps central Pacific Ocean affect weather where I live? And I think Tom's explanation is quite, quite awesome because it really talks about the connectivity of uh, these, these things in our ocean atmosphere system. In fact, I'm loving the La Nina announcement recently being in the southeast and I hate cold weather. And so one of those potential teleconnections that we tend to have milder winters uh, here in the southeast because of La Nina. So uh, CPC, uh, NOAA's Climate Prediction Center, did recently announce the, the La Nina. And I actually wrote about this in Forbes and I called it a double dip La Nina, uh, as did NOAA. Uh, tell us why it's a double dip La Nina and what does that mean? <laughs> sure. If you're having a little bit of deja vu from like, wait, didn't we just say we had a La Nina? And I wonder, you're right. We did. We had a La Nina last winter and it kind of went away, went into what we call neutral conditions and La Nina is back again. This is what we call a double dip. This idea that we had one one winter, it went away and it came right back. And you might be thinking, is that weird? Um, uh, is that weird to happen? It's actually much more common than you think. La Ninas tend to do this, um, where um, you have one one winter, it goes away a little bit, and it comes right back again the next winter. So it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. We've seen this happen a bunch of times in the past. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Tom DiLiberto. Uh, from various places uh, within NOAA, but his company, official company, uh, is, how do you say it again? I'm, this one's going to drive me crazy, CollaboraLink. Uh, CollaboraLink Technologies, boy, you're giving me a hard time today, but it's all good. Um, but we're talking about ENSO, I can say that, and El Nino and La Nina. Uh, certainly a, a weather pattern, a climate variability pattern that uh, impacts us roughly the cycle, you know, it's a normal cycle, but every two to seven-ish years, we see some aspects of these El Ninos and then perhaps La Nina. Um, do we understand what causes these sort of naturally varying cycles, these sort of teleconnection or, or sort of modes that we see in, in the ocean atmosphere system? Sure. It's it's a very complex system. I equated ENSO sometimes to being like 
And so if you imagine a room with one dimmer switch controlling the, the light in the room, and so it would be like a room with like a hundred dimmer switches. Um, and each one could be changed just a little bit. And you're trying to figure out what the light in the room is going to be. Um, so it's a very complicated pattern. But in general, the, this idea, we have the trade winds that blow from east to west across the Pacific Ocean. They can they can basically uh, pile up warmer water in the Western Pacific than the Eastern Pacific Ocean. Um, and then occasionally it could just be random weather. Uh, it could be rather conditions where you have a slowing down of those trade winds or um, other atmospheric patterns, like things like the Madden-Julian oscillation can, can set these things off. But this idea being is that that warm water begins to slosh back to the east um, in the form of uh, what's called a Kelvin wave. And that factor can can be brought with that itself by moving where that warm water is. The, the special thing about the tropics in, and it's a little bit different than areas further to the north in the oceans is that when you have this abnormally warm water, it can spur thunderstorms, it can spur convection. And that's the key. Uh, that's really the key to ENSO is by shifting where you have this anomalous or this, you know, different from normal, how much activity of uh, thunderstorm activity you have. That is what is kind of like the driver for that connection between how does the change in the ocean temperature affect the atmosphere and that far away. It's, it's those thunderstorms basically create this heat anomaly and that basically adjust things further and further away from that but that's the basic way of of how these things happen and that's why yeah they happen about two to seven years um i guess as from a forecasting perspective it'd be nicer if we had a more defined time well they happen every five years but usually it's two to seven years um and they can have a really big impact across the across the tropics and across the united states yeah speaking of that impact typically during la nina phases we tend to see more active at least on average atlantic hurricane seasons and i know that there are reasons why uh talk about some of the impacts in the united states now that we are officially back in la nina i mean what what, what are people expecting in various places and uh what do we see for the rest of the hurricane season too sure so you're you're right so when when la nina occurs we tend to see it uh enhance or at least be correlated to an enhancement of uh, tropical activity Atlantic and a decrease in the Eastern Pacific, which is generally consistent. Obviously, we had La Nina last year, too, and we we're just coming out of one during the, the that hurricane during that hurricane season. But again, I don't think I got to tell anybody how active last year's hurricane season was. And then this year's also been an incredibly active hurricane season. So there is probably a correlation or a connection between those two. Um, but for the most part across the United States, what we really look for is winter connections. Um, that tends to be the most consistent and the strongest relationship between a La Nina or an El Nino and weather conditions across the United States. So what happens is that the jet stream during La Nina gets retracted across. So if there's a jet stream that goes across the Pacific, it gets retracted. It's pretty much just off of Asia at this point, as opposed to maybe about halfway through or something like around that period uh, area in the Pacific Ocean. And El Nino is one where you basically see that jet stream extended across the entire southern tier of the United States. And that's the, that's the cause of what we see these differing patterns. So in general, with La Nina across the United States, we tend to see it be drier and warmer across the southern tier of the United States because that jet stream isn't there. It's not really pushing storms in that general area. Um, instead, there tends to be a more variable jet stream. It tends to be a little bit of a high pressure off in the Gulf of Alaska, we tend to see storms kind of go up and over it. So we do sit, tend to see a wetter uh, signal across the Pacific Northwest, cooler conditions across the northern tier. And that storm track we're talking about tends to go through the Ohio Valley. So that's if you're looking where um, there might be wetter conditions, that's kind of the that one area um, uh, where you might see that wetter spot on the eastern side of the country. 
and this is really interesting because with these El Nino and La Nina teleconnections that Tom's talking about, I, I know that there's been a lot of discussion about sort of seasonal and interannual and subseasonal prediction. And I think these these patterns really help with this sort of subseasonal predictive capability. Now, talk to, talk to the listeners about what what I mean by that. This idea of subseasonal uh, forecasting. Sure. So the idea of whether you're you're predicting a monthly outlook or a three month outlook, and you're probably you often we often hear about Enso talked about a lot, even though we we know, for instance, as scientists, that Enso is not the only game in town climate wise. There's plenty of other climate patterns that could override, quote unquote, um, what you'd expect from a La Nina and uh, the Arctic Oscillation. Um, these sorts of things can can dominate a month period of time or the Madden Julian oscillation could have an event happen going through, which can adjust things on a two to three week basis. Um, but then why do we talk so much about ENSO all the time leading up to it? Well, the one powerful thing with ENSO is that it's predictable months and months in advance. So six months of lead time for when this event may happen is a lot. We cannot give you a forecast of the Arctic oscillation six months in advance with any realm of close skill compared to what we could do with with an El Nino or a La Nina forecast. So that's the power of of ENSO in these forecasts is that if you're looking at the skill of how well our seasonal predictions are, the state of ENSO is one of the higher predictors of skill of that seasonal forecast, which is why we often look at it. And the key thing is, that, yeah, if you know ahead of time that it might be drier, it might be warmer, it might be wetter, it allows you to prepare far enough in advance so you're not just waiting till the month prior to, to, to make plans for something. You actually have a little bit more time. Now, for the United States, that's, that's important, but this is especially important for places across the Pacific and the tropics, which um, Pacific islands especially, where El Nino and La Nina may mean they don't have fresh water. Um, they may have to make a lot of um, sort of actions ahead of time to prepare for what may come uh, six or seven months uh, into the future. So with, with that being said, and the importance of El Nino or the ENSO cycle for predictability and some of the things you just mentioned, we know that we're living climate change. Um, it's not something going to happen, it's happening uh, and it's going to likely accelerate. Uh, are there any sort of studies or information that we have on the relationship between climate change and El Ninos and La Ninas? Yeah, this, this, this is the big question. Right. This is the big question. And because we know ENSO has such a strong impact on so many places, not just the United States, so many places across the globe, in South America, um, in Africa, in India, in Australia, and, and, and getting into to Asia as well, we know has, it's a, this is such an important question. And it's such a hard one to answer. The, the latest IPCC report, the physical science basis uh, report came out um, from the working group one of AR6, because we just like letters and numbers and things. Uh, um, uh, and they basically said that, you know, there's research suggesting that a war that we're seeing an increase in extremes or seeing more El Ninos. And there's also research that suggests maybe we're not seeing that. There's wait, a minute, wait a minute, Tom. So if you're sort of some skeptic out there, just an average citizen, that sounds like you don't know. So how can we trust any of the climate science? Right. People always ask me all the time, well, what, you know, if the science is settled, why are people still discussing what what are areas are like? This is an area of active research. So we don't know everything. Um, and this is hard. Remember, I talked about that dimmer switch again. 
Well, climate change is I have a five-year-old, so I'll use my five-year-old. It's like my five-year-old going into the room and slightly changing all of these tiny things which impact the strength and uh, frequency of ENSO. And then now we're asking like, okay, now we have to go back in and figure out exactly how things got changed. And then even more importantly, we have to figure out, are the climate models getting each of those dimmer switches right? Um, because they might be getting an answer for the wrong reasons. And because it's such a complicated thing, um, some of these models that we have for projecting the future or even hindcasting back um, into the past might be getting the, you know, the, 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 the patterns of ENSO right for the wrong reasons. And if we know that's not true in the future, it gives us less confidence about what's going to happen. But when I say, I don't know, kind of an educated shrug, I would say there are active scientists who say, no, I think it's, I think ENSO and I think El Ninos are going to become stronger in the future. And there are scientists who think, I don't think that's the case, but they're very, you know, they're producing research. I feel like every month there's a new article that comes out in a journal somewhere discussing um, the latest. I think actually in September of, uh, of 2021, there was one week where uh, a paper came out saying El Nino was going to get stronger. And then the next week, there are two papers that came out and said, I don't think so. I think it's actually gonna, there's going to happen less often. But um, it's such an important question. And it's this is a consistent thing in the IPCC reports that came out where there's just not a ton of confidence in saying what's going to happen. But the one thing we can say um, as related to climate change is that the impacts from ENSO can change due to climate change. Meaning, if you're living in an area that tends to get wetter during an El Nino or a La Nina in a warming atmosphere, that place might get wetter. Um, if you're a place that's warmer, that temperature might increase because climate changes. So that's the way, that's something that we're much more confident on when discussing El Nino and La Nina and climate change. Not necessarily how itself is going to change, but the impacts certainly are and will continue to change in the future. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm talking with Tom DiLiberto from uh, that name <laughs> that I keep uh, struggling with, Calabrolink Technologies. I, all my L's, the L and the alliteration today is off the charts on Weather Geeks. But uh, we're grateful to have Tom DiLiberto here. And, uh, you know, something he was just saying, it's important because it, it really acknowledges that there indeed are uncertainties in climate science. Uh, the climate, we're learning new things all the time. But that uncertainty doesn't mean 
looking at the climate models and the, what they're telling us in a big picture sense are, aren't useful. I, I have that I have that conversation often because if I tell you know my cousin there's an 80% chance of rain, um, she'll probably grab an umbrella that day. But there was uncertainty in that information too. So um, just keep that in mind as you're sort of talking about science and climate change. Though there's certainly some uncertainties that about climate the climate system. We we have a lot of information that we're pretty certain about as well. Now, I, I know that you worked for a company in the past called Innovim. Is that how you pronounce that? Innovim, yeah. Innovim. And yeah, it's really interesting names on the show today. Uh, what kind of company is that? And what were you up to when you worked there? Yeah, so that was the contract company again that I worked for when I was at the Climate Prediction Center. So that's when I worked for the Famine Early Warning System Network. I worked for um, the international desk um, at the Climate Prediction Center because the Climate Prediction Center inside the National Weather Service has an international desk too. They don't just make forecasts for um, the United States; they actually make climate forecasts for much of the world. Um, there's also training programs um, that through the Climate Prediction Center that they have, where um, we invite scientists from over the world to come in and uh, get trained in seasonal prediction uh, to be able to go back to their communities and make predictions for where they live. So um, that was the company that I worked for at that time. Now, one of the things that you mentioned early on in the podcast is you, you've sort of shifted into more science communication and you're good at it. I mean, I'm, I'm followed your work even prior to the podcast, so I know you do an outstanding job. Tell us a little bit about your philosophy on science communication. Sure. That's a that's a big question, Marshall. Uh, <laughs> and the one thing I can say is that my philosophy always changes. Um, it's something I iterate on all the time. Um, uh, it's, and it really depends on the audience. One thing that um, I find really important in science communication is authenticity. Um, I want people when either if they you know, I talk about climate and climate change a lot in science communication, and I know not everyone's going to listen to me and say, oh, yeah, he's right. Um, but at the very least, I want people to come across thinking that's authentically him. Um, he is passionate about this. He is he is not, you know, changing things up on me. I'm, I'm I'm authentic. So I am who I am. And when I communicate, I want that to come across that people can see that about me. So one thing I'm 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 a big proponent of is I, I, I like to inject um, a little bit of my personality into my my science communication, but I like to tell stories about why I care about things. I think showing vulnerability is also um, important. I open about what I'm concerned about and scared about. I'm also open about what uh, 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 what excites me, and I'm openly I'm openly nerdy, um, and I'm not afraid to be openly hey, nerdy. Call weather geeks. So we we embrace. <laughs> I'm in the right crowd. This is this is this is exactly right. And I love weather geeks. Um, and so I my other philosophy is I tend to meet people where they are. Um, and I like to make connections with people when I'm communicating them in public, although it's hard nowadays with <laughs> with COVID. Um, but I like to you know, meet people where they are. And the the other key thing I've learned about a lot from when I first started thinking about science communication, I thought it was a lot about communicating, like me talking. And I've realized as I've gotten older that uh, the most important part of science communication is the listening aspect of it. So oftentimes uh, my philosophy is often to listen first um, and then communicate second, because um, you can learn a lot um, by listening. And then you could know what's the best way of communicating to somebody. And I mentioned earlier that you do improv and comedy. 
Um, do you bring any of that into your science communication? And tell us a little bit about the improv and comedy that you do, um, irrespective of weather and climate. Are you? Can I go to a, a comedy club in D.C. or Maryland and see you performing? Yeah, so I am uh, um, a member of the Washington Improv Theater. It's the biggest improv theater in Washington, D.C. I'm a house team member, which means I'm on one of the teams that um, you can pay to see on weekends. Um, and I also have a couple of other teams I have around there, including one team, which is a science improv team. Um, it's made up of scientists who do improv comedy. I call it the hypothesis because our hypothesis is that we're funny, um, but we need more data to we need more data to see if that's true or not. Um, uh, and that's a that's a show. That's my other way of communicating science and doing science communication is um, to audiences who may not expect to see, uh, not ex may not expect to learn something. They're there for comedy. They're not there to learn about science. But this is a you know it's like it's like putting in uh, vegetables into your mac and cheese. Uh, and my way of doing that. But uh, yeah, I. Um, I like. I'm a. I'm a little bit weird where I like the the idea of not knowing what I'm going to say next. Um, for other people, that might scare them, but for me, for whatever reason, I've always found that really thrilling. Um, so improv comedy always made it uh, was always seemed like a natural fit. And it's one thing that's also helped me a lot in communication wise is that. Um, and what improv is really strong at doing for people is that not everyone's like that. But improv, what improv can do is it makes you more comfortable with the unknown. And it makes you a much better communicator because oftentimes what's the scariest thing about communicating to somebody is not when you're speaking, it's when someone's speaking back at you or asking you a question and you don't know what the question's gonna be. You don't know what's gonna be asked of you and being comfortable in the fact that you're an expert and you're you're confident in your own knowledge to be able to respond to somebody um, is such a powerful thing and a really important thing when you're dealing with science communication. Um, and, you know, it's one thing I've used a lot um, in when doing a lot of public engagement um, with with on science topics, because I don't know if you've ever been in a room with a bunch of kids before, but the, the, the kids ask the weirdest, most fun, random questions in the entire world. Um, and it's fun to be able to figure out, like, oh, where are they going with this and being able to respond in a way that that makes sense with them. But, yeah, if you're in Washington, D.C., Hit me up. Look up the Washington Improv Theater. I usually do shows. Um, again, it's slowed down now because of COVID, but now we do shows online, too. So technically, you don't even have to be in Washington, D.C. Uh, to see our shows. Um, check you, out. you can just go on the Internet. Yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, actually, one of my former colleagues who was, was formerly my department head at the University of Georgia and, and a former dean. Uh, does improv now here in the Atlanta area, and, and I, it's just something she she got into in the last few years. So it's really neat to see. Now, speaking of that, you've served as the master of ceremony for the Department of State during the COP twenty one and twenty two a few, few years ago. Um, what were your responsibilities that, and did that come from sort of your gift at being a science communicator, a scientist, and someone that does improv? Or did someone kind of have get wind of that? <laughs> yeah. So that was uh, so the, the 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 interesting thing about my background and history is that I've always felt like I want to do science communication. I just never knew how to do it. So then I was like, well, I'll go to grad school and do research. And I was like, well, I'll go to I'll do more forecasting this. I, I would like to do science communication, but I don't really know how that's going to work. I'm fine just doing science. I'd like the science anyway. And then that contest that I won came up. It was called America Scientist Adult, put on by the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS. And my wife told me about it. She's also in the field, um, in general science policy field. And she's like, well, you should apply for this. You'd be great at this. I was like, I don't know. 
I don't know. And then she's like, no, you're applying to it. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, fine. And then I applied and I, I made it to the finals. And then I had to got to go to the conference. And I was basically to give a three minute talk on any topic I wanted to. And my topic was why weather forecasting is hard and stop being mean to meteorologists about it. Um, and I won. I won. I won that contest. And I was like, oh, maybe maybe I do have something going here. Maybe I actually am good at science communication. And from then that people started getting wind that, oh my, did you know there's a scientist here who does science communication and likes it? And they started giving me a little bit more opportunities. And then someone at the Department of State found out and they just so happened to have an opening for a master of ceremony at, at, the, at the U.S. Center. And the U.S. Center, is, in case you don't know, uh, is at the, the COP events, which are these major climate uh, conferences and diplomacy. But at those events, while the negotiations are going on between countries, there um, are these big pavilions, either hosted by countries or NGOs or um, other groups. And the U.S. has a huge center called the U.S. Center, the, the pavilion there, which is made the main public outreach space where they have a whole host of different what they call side events um, talking about anything related to climate that you can imagine from the science to policy to education to engagement, like all those things. So my role at COP21 and at COP22 and upcomingly at COP26 um, in, in November, I'm going back. Um, I'll be in Glasgow and, you know, for COP26 uh, is to basically help serve as like the, the master of ceremony, which is someone who basically makes sure the events go on correctly. I answer questions. I do communication on science. I moderate some events if they need a moderator. And I'm basically there to, to kind of be a, a science person. I call a hype person. I'm there to keep the energy up um, and to communicate all the amazing science that gets done across the United States um, and the world, really, um, by the United States. Uh, and there's all these cool partnerships that exist uh, to the rest of the world, which is it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, um, but it's uh, it's important. Um, and the reason why I was really interested in doing that is because I felt, you know, I'm, I'm an OK scientist. I feel like I'm a better science communicator than I am a scientist. And I was always trying to figure out what I can do for climate change. I was like, you know what? This is something I can do. This is kind of like the key combination of all of my improv skills, my science communication skills, and my science interests. It's like, I'm a really good host of things. Um, so I, I've been really glad I've been able to help out with that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I tell my students all the time, everyone has a different skill set, leverage it uh, for your cause. Uh, speaking of COP26, before we get out of here, what do you, from a science or climate change or policy perspective, any things that you're sort of expecting or hoping from for out of COP26? I'm looking forward to the announcements that come from, uh, uh, if there being any sort of announcements between companies and, 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 and countries and countries between countries and countries themselves in terms of how we're moving forward with net zero emissions, how we're moving forward with setting targets and how we're going to, you know, uh, with those targets being said, how are we going to track how we're moving with those? Um, the United States hasn't been um, that the U.S. The U.S. has been at COP, uh, has been at COP during the last several years, but there hasn't been a U.S. center since COP 22. In fact, when I was at COP 22, was over the election day actually of 2016. Um, uh, so this is the first time the U.S. will be back in terms of a broader public outreach and a a, a much larger group of people than we've been in since um, since 2016. So um, I'm also interested to see what it's what's been going on and uh, what the what the feeling is uh, to all that. Um, but there's going to be a lot of interesting things being announced. Um, and one thing I'll, I'll be honest, I'm really fascinated. I love to see. I love seeing the youth. I love seeing all these. Uh, I love seeing the this 
swell, this brown swell of uh, of passion uh, for action by youth groups and, and whatnot across the across the world, the lone United States. I'm looking forward to seeing that as well at, at COP 21, uh, COP 26, sorry, which I, I imagine I'll see plenty. Wow, this is this has been awesome. Where where can people find your blogs and find you on social media? Sure. So uh, my 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 Twitter handle is T D Liberto. I did not create a, a fancier name then. So T D I L I B E R T O. Uh, you can find me there. Um, I'm also a writer at climate.gov. So you can check me out there. One of the um, best sites out there for climate science and climate education information. By the way, I highly endorse climate.gov. And we we just re, newly redesigned it, so you can check out. It's much more user friendly now. It's more mobile friendly and tablet friendly than it's ever been before. Um, and I write for the Enso blog, which is uh, a popular uh, blog on on there. But yeah, feel free to chat. I'm always available to chat. I also am the social media manager for the NOAA Climate handle. So if you've ever interacted with NOAA Climate on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, you're talking to me. So um, feel free to always. Uh, engage. If you have any questions on any of this stuff, feel free to contact me and I'll gladly answer it for all of you. Wow. That's really where we have to end. I knew this was going to be an awesome one. And I, I bet you agree after having listened to Tom, he, he's really good at what he does. Uh, before we get out of here, though, I've got to do the geek of the week. We'd like to hi highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is Alan Huffman. Alan has been a meteorologist for, wow, 20 years and currently serves the Raleigh, North Carolina area. He has covered countless tropical storms like Matthew and Florence, and he's covered some difficult snow and ice storms as well, which can be a challenge in the southeast. We know all about it in Georgia. His knowledge to share both what he wants and what, what the weather does and why weather makes him a mainstay uh, to his followers. If you'd like to follow along with Alan, you can check him out on Twitter at Raleigh Weather. That's at Raleigh, R-A-L-E-I-G-H. WX. Uh, congratulations, Alan, and thank you for uh, being a supporter of Weather Geeks. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this has been Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.